This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. And being a part of this, this uh, evening as well. So it's my privilege here as the Dean of Spiritual Life and Campus Pastor to introduce Kristen, our speaker this evening. Dr. Kristen D. Johnson is an Associate Professor of Theology and Christian Formation at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. She was previously a professor at Hope College for about 10 years, where she pioneered a minor in Christian ministry and service and taught, taught classes in that same program. She earned her PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. I have a special affinity for that place. And has published two books, Theology, Pol- Political Theory, and Pluralism, Beyond Tolerance and Difference, with Cambridge University Press, and this book, The Justice Calling, with Bethany Wong and Brazos Press. She lives in Holland, Michigan, with her husband, Trigby, and her two delightful children. I've lived the whole family, and they're wonderful. I got to jump on the trampoline with their children, which was lots of fun. And she, um, she comes to us from a, a Hope College and, and uh, Western, where we have a great friendship and partnership. There's Jill's here from, uh, from Western in the back, if you're interested in learning more about the programs they offer, the wonderful ministry training programs. But all that... Um, to say and kind of to lead us to, I hope we come to with an open heart and open mind to God and to hear from God through Kristen. She helps us look into and see the biblical picture and the witness of who God is and who we are as a result of that. So would you join me in welcoming Kristen Johnson. Thank you. It's great to be here. Delighted to be back at Whitworth. It's such a lovely, welcoming place. And I've had a great day, lots of good stimulating conversation. So I'm hoping to cover a fair amount of ground tonight. We'll see how it goes. I'm ambitious in what I'm hoping we can cover. But to start, one of the things I shared in chapel this morning is one of the the convictions underlying the reason that Bethany and I came together to write this book was that we were seeing more and more Christians become passionate about justice And we were worried that some of the passion we were seeing was going to be sort of like firecracker passion. Um, You discover an an injustice or you see God's heart for justice and you're exploding with passion. And what does it look like for that passion to last over the long haul? And also, what does it look like for that passion to be deeply woven into our lives wherever we are? So those are the two pieces that I'm hoping we can explore tonight. So what we were delighted to discover as we entered into this book is that when you enter into the story of Scripture, you see God's heart for justice again and again and again, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation. I shared this morning, I think, (laughs) some of my um, events are blending together, but we had thought that this was going to be this chapter on Scripture and the Bible Scripture, the Bible, scripture and Justice was going to be one chapter, and we ended up with 50 pages, and we had only gotten to Genesis 3. So we uncovered so much in the biblical material and so much about God that we decided to restructure the whole project and move through the story of Scripture. And with that, we paired a spiritual practice because part of what we believe is that we are called to be people who seek justice, and that's a formational process, and the Spirit is going to do some work on us um, to help us become the people we're called to be. So question for you. As you look at this drawing, any guesses as to what it is? 
be bold, shout out what comes to mind. What was that? Creation. Ooh, I like that one. Any other ideas? So if you look closely and with the eyes of a four-year-old, <laughs> our son, when he was four, went through this stage of drawing things and then wanting me to guess what it was. <laughs> and it was this paralyzing moment because I thought, I don't want to break his four-year-old buddy creative heart, and I have no idea. <laughs> so this one is actually a hope Calvin basketball game. If you're not from the Midwest, you may not know that this is a huge rivalry. But if you look in the top corner, you can see H-O, a little bit of a P. That's a basketball player. That's the three-point line. There's maybe another player over there. So when I saw this picture, I was thinking, this is a little bit like trying to guess what justice is. I think it's sometimes easy when you encounter an injustice to say, well, I know that's wrong. That's not right. That doesn't seem like the way things are supposed to be. But when it comes to positively saying, what is justice? That's a harder task. And we have some maybe fuzzy ideas and some inklings, but how is it we know what's right? Now, as Christians, we believe we know what's right as we look most centrally to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who makes God known, and also the words of Scripture. So we're constantly called to be engaged in the biblical story and looking to Christ to get this sense of what is right. Some of the pieces that we um, uncovered, um, another story about my son. So in one summer... He broke three wrists, so two at once, and then another one later that summer. He was out of a cast for one week of the whole summer. So I thought, I've got to get something redemptive out of this. So the final thing we added to the book was an analogy between broken bones and injustice. So if you think of it this way, our bones are created to go in a certain way. And you can tell, at least on his third break, it was very clear, not to be too graphic, that it was distorted. It was out of whack. And the doctors had to put him under and, and get it back the way it was supposed to be. So biblically, the most common way that justice is used is setting things right. There's a way God intended for things to go. And they get distorted. They get broken. And they need to be set right. And that is ultimately the work of God and ultimately what Jesus Christ brings about. Deeply connected to justice in Scripture, Old Testament and New, is the term righteousness. And we don't always see that because of differences in translations. But in justice, setting things right, you can see the connection to righteousness, living rightly, right living that flows from right loving. So being restored to God is supposed to connect with how we live in the world. Amy Sherman, who I'll talk about a bit later, has a great, very simple way of thinking about righteousness, up, in, and out. As we're restored to the relationship with God, there is restoration that happens within us, and that should lead to our outward living, seeking what's right for others and in this world. That's one word that I think we have really misunderstood and have some connotations that aren't always positive. And I think it's a beautiful word that we can reclaim as we look at the biblical story. Hesed, one of my favorite words. It is one of those words that's very difficult to translate. So you'll sometimes see it steadfast love, mercy, 
My very favorite is a biblical, a biblical scholar named Ellen Davis translates it, God's love in action. So the idea is the basis behind why does God create? Why does God remain faithful to Israel? Why does God send Jesus Christ? It's God's love in action, the steadfast love of God that never ceases. But interestingly, with Hesed, as well, well, actually with all of these, um, but I'll highlight it in Hesed, it's also a call on God's people. So God himself is the source of love and puts God's love into action, and he calls us to put our love into action. So Micah 6.8, this famous verse, what does God require of you to love justly and act, love mercy and act justly and walk humbly with our God? The, the mercy one there is Hesed. So this is true of God, but it's also supposed to be true of us, God's people. We are supposed to put love into action in this world as we seek what's right. Linked to that is holiness, another one of those words that I think we sort of can think, oh, that means technically to be set apart. We think we're holier than others. We're supposed to remain sort of pure. When you look at Scripture and how that word is actually used, the first time it's used of a person is God, and it's when God is described as the Holy One of Israel. So it's God making himself known as he draws near to Israel. And then Jesus Christ, the embodiment of holiness, right? God in the flesh. What do we know about Jesus Christ? He draws near. He enters in for the sake of love put and setting things right. So what we see as we immerse ourselves in the story of Scripture is a God who loves justice and righteousness, who puts his love into action by drawing near, and who calls us as his people to draw near to others. So we're set apart by drawing near, right? So we're made right with God so that we can love rightly, put love into action. And those go hand in hand all throughout Scripture. A couple other words that uh, you probably hear a lot about, and I know we've got a shalom expert in the room, although maybe he's not in the room anymore. Terry, somewhere. Oh, in the back of the room. Um, Shalom is another one of those words that it's very hard to translate into English. The fullness of its meaning does not get carried over. So peace is one of the technical words. Wholeness, harmony, it's all of creation living together in sort of this vital relationship of harmony and flourishing. God, creation, self, others. So some scholars talk about four layers, being right relationship with God, relationship within yourself, relationship with others, and relationship with creation. And, and our sort of God's vision intersects with all of those, and that's supposed to shape all of our lives as well. And then injustice would be what results when we fail to use the power we've been given to seek what's right. So let me flesh that out as we look at creation, the beginning of the story. So in the beginning, when God created the world, God also created humans and entrusted us with his power. God could have chosen to do things differently, right? He didn't have to make that choice. But in entrusting creation into our care, the word dominion is a word that has power connotations, kingly connotations. So God gave us dominion. And I think sometimes the contrast can, can flesh itself out a little bit if we think about King Herod in the Jesus story. So King Herod was a king, and when he hears that there's potentially a rival 
he hoards his power, right? He, he wants to keep it, and he does everything, including kill firstborn males, to try to preserve his power. God did not do that with his power, right? He had his power, and he said, I'm going to create, and I'm going to entrust this world into your hands, but I want you to do that in ways that are in keeping with my vision for what's right, for this vision of flourishing and wholeness, seeking what's right. So in the ideal world, there would have been flourishing for all. And another big piece of the garden story that's really important is that, oh, no, wait, I'm jumping ahead, jumping ahead. Okay, I'm not going to go there yet. Um, So when we think about creation, we wanted to pair that with this practice of Sabbath-keeping. And part of that is intentional because when you think about a book that's about justice and how our call to justice is all throughout Scripture, it's tempted to translate that into, okay, that means we're supposed to be doing all the time. And that is a piece of the Christian life. But we believe at the heart of the biblical narrative is a picture of who God is and who we're called to be as people of God. So the doing, you could say, flows from the being. So this is who God is. This is who God's called us to be. And as we live that out, it's a responsiveness to God and our identity in God. So stopping to keep the Sabbath is a reminder of who we are and that that's more important than what we do. And it's also a reminder, as we talked about um, with that sort of fuzzy picture of justice, that it's easy for us to get our own ideas about what's right. And we as Christians are called to follow God's idea of what is right. So stepping back, gathering together in worship, taking a day apart is, a, is an invitation to see the world as God wants it to be. And it's also a reminder that God is at work. If you enter in to any work, if you're talking about discipleship, evangelism, justice, education, administration, there's always more work to be done than you can do. And the temptation towards burnout is really high. So as we step back and remember, God is the one most fundamentally at work. This is God's world. This is God's redemption. We are invited to join in with that, but this is not on our shoulders. The other beautiful piece about justice, which I was sharing at dinner with some students, is that it's a very other-oriented commandment. It's given right after God's people come out of slavery. And God says, you were slaves in Egypt. You had no power. You had no chance to rest. Now I am calling you to rest and to extend that rest to everyone in your midst. Every worker, every foreigner, every animal and the land. So it was a very equalizing and pretty, um, I don't like to use the word radical, I think it's overused, but I think it's safe to say in that context, it was a pretty radical commandment. There was no weekend yet. They didn't have the idea of a day off. And this was a pretty significant call to give God's people and to extend that equally. So as we step back to take Sabbath rest, we're also being invited to see where are other people in our midst not able to rest? Where are they not able to make that choice? And what does it look like for us to live lives where we're receiving that gift from God and extending it to others? So the fall comes next. The, that original vision, um, and I intentionally have this picture of the fruit 
because this captures, I think, something so important about um, the posture that we were supposed to have, which was receiving God's power, receiving God's love, and then offering and giving back. The moment when Eve takes that piece of fruit is the first moment of taking in the Bible rather than receiving. And I think that reminds us, think of King Herod with the hoarding. That's the opposite of what we're called to. We're called to receive and then to give back, to offer back to God based in what we've received. And this posture of taking and hoarding, um, what Augustine would say is, all things have been created good, but we take them and we twist them and we turn in on ourselves and we use them for the wrong ends. So things like power, which were supposed to be given by God to enable us to seek what's right, we end up taking that power to seek what's best for ourselves, to increase our own glory or our own name, rather than seeking what's right for the world. And the layers of brokenness match the original layers of shalom, you could say. So sometimes there's been a tradition in certain strands of Christianity, to focus on brokenness primarily in terms of my personal relationship with God. And, and we believe that's central. Fundamentally, we are broken and separated from God, and we need Christ to bring wholeness there. But if God's creation vision was this big picture vision of right living and right life between me and my neighbor and me and creation and this vision of flourishing, when the fall entered, when brokenness entered, all of those layers were ruptured. So my relationship with God, my wholeness within myself, my relationship with my neighbor, and my relationship with creation, which many people believe includes the institutions of culture that came later. So there's layers of brokenness all around us, and we experience that, and we witness that, and we believe that we're actually called to be very intentional in moving towards that brokenness. That we as Christians have sometimes been guilty of standing back and staying in places that are comfortable. And, and I should say certain demographics of Christians who've had that privilege and opportunity. But the call of the gospel is to remember that Christ is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So we have, in the light of Christ, the ability to move towards the dark places and the responsibility. Now, that doesn't have to look super dramatic. My co-author, for example, tells the story of being a seminary student, thinking she was called to go into church history, walking outside of, the, of her class of the classroom on the way to lunch, and seeing a poster. And the poster said, Slavery is alive. Rape for profit is real. And her eyes were open. Now, this was 12, 15 years ago, so before we were widely aware that slavery was still around and that sex trafficking was a problem. And she goes up, and she's thinking, what? And, the lady, and she says, what should I do? And the lady says, write your name down on our mailing list. <laughs> and she says, what? <laughs> really? But she did that, and in that moment, she got drawn into these weekly stories of children around the world who were suffering. And the Spirit used that to open her eyes to these realities and to eventually for her to discern where her life would intersect with that. So it doesn't have to be huge statements. It can be simple, faithful steps to intentionally engage. It can be listening 
to your classmate, tell their story, or volunteering downtown, or taking advantage of service learning opportunities, doing these small things that move you out of your own story and into the stories of others, and letting the Spirit use that to open you to some of the realities of the world. If you move into those realities, however, you're going to uncover some dark and hard things. And at dinner, we were talking about that too, sort of as you move further into different aspects of injustice, different places of darkness, you're going to need to take some time for lament. And God's relationship with Israel is one way we can understand the importance of lament. So think of the biblical story, God creating the world for wholeness, for flourishing, brokenness entering in, but God doesn't give up. God in his hesed love and his steadfast love says, I'm remaining committed to humanity and to this vision. And he makes this covenant relationship with Israel. And that's part of that identity piece. I am your God, you are my people. And he remains faithful to that covenant through many ups and downs and twists and turns. And the beautiful part about God's law is that it reveals some of God's desires that connect back to that original creation vision. So I know sometimes we wonder, why are there all these strange laws with all these detailed nuances? And there are Old Testament scholars who can help us further understand that. But some of the laws, one of my favorites is, if someone needs a loan and they don't have anything to give you, just sort of as a, as a token of that loan, they give you their blanket. Make sure you give that blanket back to them by sundown so they're not cold. I mean, that's the specificity of God's care, right? That reveals something about who God is and what God cares about. And God wants his people who are trying to uh, live in this covenant relationship to reflect the things that God cares about. So he gives them laws for worship with him, right? Right relationship with God, for how they are to interact with others, for how they are to treat people with whom they work and the poor and the foreigners in their midst. They're very specific because they show us important things about who God is and what God cares about. In the midst of that, you have these recurring themes of God's people failing to live as God intended. And so we see the prophets especially being uh, these markers of calling God's people back to righteousness and justice and lamenting when they fail to do so, and sometimes lamenting God for not acting more when injustice is happening. So this beautiful tradition that we find in the Psalms and in the prophets of, um, of seeing the harsh reality of the world in its brokenness and having permission to bring that to God, to say, where are you, God? Why is this going on? This is not right. Your people are suffering. Injustice is happening. How can you let this be? That, there is permission to bring all of that to God. And if we don't bring that to God, I think a couple different things can happen. I think either we will slowly distance ourselves from our faith because the questions seem too hard to answer, like God can't handle them. So you sort of bracket it more and more. Or you won't be able to sustain the fight because it will overwhelm you. <laughs> the darkness will overwhelm you. 
So this is this beautiful biblical permission to bring all of the questions that come up to God and wrestle with them. And that includes one-on-one with God, but also in communities where you can wrestle together with what you're experiencing and try to encounter um, some glimpses of hope in the midst of the hard questions. So Jesus Christ, the good news. Um, In the midst of God's ongoing relationship with Israel and God's call for the people of God to live as his people, which would show itself in certain ways, Jesus Christ enters in. And And Christ is the one who finally enables us to live fully as God's people. He shares his relationship with the Father with us so that we can become sons and daughters of God. And in sharing that, what, is, what do we learn from Scripture? He shares his righteousness with us. He enables us to become right with God. And as I mentioned in chapel today, in places where the biblical writers would have seen clearly these links between justice and righteousness, we don't see those as clearly. In the Greek, it's the same root word. So when you have a place talking about justification and justice and righteousness, in the original, some of those connection points would have been really clear that as we're made right with God, we are set free to seek what's right in the world. And the beautiful thing about this is that we do this in freedom. We do this, as we put it, as saints, not heroes. So think about the American superhero, (laughs) Usually, not always, I know, especially now, but usually the story has gone a person who operates on their own, who has to be in just the right place at just the right time, and who saves the day. And we have this sort of, um, you know, the the Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, and we have sort of this intensity around that, right? Um, But but there are some problems. Um, The first problem as Christians is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ saves and reconciles. And that weight is not on our shoulders. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Um, And yet, there's an active call to participate in that. So saints is one of those words. I know we don't have a lot of great connections with it. It feels sort of like a distant um, relic. But... Depending on your translation, this is part of our identity. Some translations have beloved children or saints. This is who we already are. Now think back to how I described holiness. God in his holiness draws near to set things right. And now we as saints, saints comes from the Latin for holy. So we now are God's holy people. And our holiness is to be made known as we draw near. So in our rightness with God made possible by Christ, We are to draw near to others, not as lone range heroes rushing in, but as body of Christ working together, seeking God's kingdom. The other beautiful thing about the word saint is it never appears in the singular. So part of who we are is a people together, and this is a call for us together. And some of us may go out and be called to certain things within that, but never on our own. We're always supposed to do this together, and that communal peace is really significant. So in light of Christ, we can live as saints, not heroes. And then from there, we are sent out on this kingdom mission. We are supposed to be actively engaged. 
And as I mentioned all throughout the biblical story, this holding together of word and deed, that to be God's people was to live and love in certain ways. And now finally, as the people of God, set apart in Christ, we can trust that the Spirit is working, transforming, and sending. So we're not going on our own, and we're not going in our own power, but we're going in the power of Christ by the Spirit to enter into the work that God is doing to reconcile and redeem. Um, I think I'm not going to say more about that right now because the last chunk, I'm going to try to flesh out more concretely what this might look like in our lives. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, the final piece of the biblical story is this reminder that we're not at the end yet, <laughs> that Christ is still going to return and going to ultimately fully reconcile all things, finish the work that he started. And this is a reminder that we can persevere, that we have, we're part of a long journey. We're not going to see quick results. It's slow, hard work. And this is equally true of every part of our discipleship. This is slow, hard work, a long obedience in the same direction. So what does it take to persevere in hope? And one of the pieces we talk about in this chapter is how to hope for perpetrators. What it looks like not just to have hope for the victims that, that things will be set right, but also that even the most corrupt human trafficker can be made new. And how do we hold on to that hope? One of the practical pieces that we offer, which seems very disconnected, is to consistently attend worship and to consistently partake of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. That, that we're supposed to, in those moments together, be given glimpses of this fully reconciled world where we're coming together as a people in worship of God, in equality, where all are welcome, where all are fed, where all are nurtured, across our differences, not, not um, blanketing out our differences, but sort of from the fullness of who we are, finding fullness in Christ. So as we come together, that is supposed to give us these glimpses of the kingdom that then shape us as we move out to be able to see with kingdom vision. What, how things are supposed to be and how they're falling short. And the passages that we get in Scripture, I know we don't know detailed, um, we don't get detailed painted out scenes of what things are going to look like in the age to come, but they are very rich, layered pictures of God in full communion with God's people, people dwelling in the houses that they built, people enjoying the vineyards that they planted, right? So there's this very... Um, sort of holistic sense of restoration that we see with people living together across their differences, united to God, and sort of living in right relationship with the land. So I think one of the most helpful images, which I mentioned in chapel this morning, as we think about this calling that we, we say we believe we have, is to be like trees. And this is a piece of artwork that I had... Um, a colleague's wife paint as I took on my position at the seminary in discipleship and formation. What's a picture I could hold in my mind as I think about this and as I try to invite people into this? So you'll notice some things. Um, one is there's a long, big section that's kind of hard soil, right? 
rocks and layers that have to be gone through. Like I was mentioning earlier, this, the whole life that we experience in Christ is not about quick, easy, fast. It's slow work as the Spirit transforms us, and our roots are deep in the living waters of Christ, right? We need to be sustained by the living waters of Christ. And it's very intentionally a group of trees together with our branches knitted together because we're stronger in Christ and we're stronger together. And that's a biblical vision of who we're called to be as the people of God. And yet equally important is the top part, right? That it's not just about my own deep roots. It's not just about my own spiritual growth. It's about how those deep roots manifest themselves in fruit and beauty and goodness in the world. So trees that take in the toxic air and offer life-giving oxygen, right? This, I think, should be our vision. They offer beauty and shade. And, the, and I think one really important piece is that trees do not only offer good air to their own kind. The oak tree doesn't say, I only care that other oak trees have good air, right? They are offering this good air to all around them. So that, I think, is part of our vision, to say every place where someone is not thriving, where there is injustice, where someone is not flourishing, what is our calling to try to take that toxic place and offer life-giving air? One of the ways that people have been talking about this in recent years comes from Jeremiah. Seek the welfare of the city, which is a translation of seek the shalom of the city. So as we think about this biblical vision, now we're moving towards what, it, what can this look like here and now in this place. Um, so Jeremiah 29, the context is that the people of God are in exile. They've been sent to Babylon. And they're wondering, what does this mean? We thought we were supposed to be the people of God in Israel, where we had the land and we could worship God and we had the power, and now we've been exiled. What do we do? And God, through Jeremiah, says, marry, have kids, put down roots, and seek the welfare of this city. So people have started to wonder if this is a good biblical place for us to go as Christians in this moment where we're not the dominant voice and place and we're trying to think about what does it look like to be a presence here and now? Could it look like seeking the shalom of the city? Trying to think about where we are. God didn't say, try to turn Babylon into Israel. He said, honor sort of where you are and figure out where you can offer life and peace. So that's the kind of vision we're talking about. And I think about that as having kingdom imagination. So we get through the biblical story, through these practices of worship, through the life of Christ, this sense of how things are supposed to be. And then we try to have this imagination where we can go out from our worshiping places and see, okay, life is supposed to be this way. And where is it falling short? And what can we contribute James Davison Hunter is a sociologist, and he talks about this as faithful presence. Being present right where you are and having vision for right where you are that goes beyond the, w the way you inherit things to see what could be, what could be different, what could be better. So a big piece of this is trying to get our imaginations to think both in terms of individuals who are not flourishing 
and also in terms of the structures and institutions that impact individuals. And American Christians have not been the best at thinking institutionally. We tend to prioritize the individual and see where a person is hurting, and that's an important first step. But what we have to be aware of is that sociologically, a person's life and their ability to flourish is impacted by these hidden institutions and structures all around them. And without attending to them, we're not going to enable that flourishing. There's a famous um, Helen, is it Prejean, who does a lot of advocacy work on behalf of death row inmates, who says, you know, if you're seeing a bunch of babies in the water and you're sort of standing there rescuing them, that's important work. But you could also go upstream and figure out how are they getting in the water in the first place, right? So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You want to be attentive to the person who is suffering, and you also want to say, what else is going on that is leading to that? And what are the layers that we can address? So Hunter talks about this as extending our understanding of the Great Commission. We've understood that as going out to the ends of the earth and sharing the gospel. And that is good. And what does it look like right where we are to think about what, what the gospel means for me as a parent and a community member, for you as a teacher and educator, for you as a nurse and a public health advocate, right? How do we take these places and these callings and be attentive with kingdom vision and allow, allow us to inhabit all these levels of social structure with kingdom vision. To flesh this out a little bit more, Amy Sherman has an excellent book called Kingdom Calling. And she is basically in the first part indicting the church for not giving a better vision of how we can live out our faith. And she's specifically focused on work. I think we can expand this to all of our callings, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the, the things she talks about is there are ministries that try to help Christians say, think about how their faith connects to their daily paid work. And they have tended to focus on evangelism, so you are in a secular workplace so that you can meet people and share the gospel, or ethics. So what does it look like for you as an accountant to work in this place and not... Um, mess with the numbers to make it look like your profits are better than they are or to make good personal ethical decisions. She is not saying that those don't matter. Those do matter. I've added a third because in my circles, there was a lot of talk about excellence. As you live your calling with excellence, people will wonder, why are you so motivated? And you'll be able to say it's because of Christ. And they'll, they'll sort of look at that and honor that. Again, that's, that's not unimportant. But what Amy Sherman is talking about and what James Hunter is talking about and the vision I'm hoping we can catch if we don't have it already is, what does it look like to add kingdom vision to that? So we're saying we're inhabiting these jobs. We've been given, think back to that creation vision. We've been given power. We've been given responsibility. What does it look like to receive that and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? That's in keeping with your vision. Where are things not right that I can do something about? So these are my two quick analogies to try to flesh this out a little bit, and then the rest of our time we'll be continuing to flesh it out. Who has seen the movie Cars? Okay, a fair number. So for those of you who haven't, it's an it's a animated film, and it's about an old town that used to be thriving, and then the highway, Route 66, was built, and now no one stops in that town. So you have these um, businesses that no one goes to, abandoned hotel, um, Abandon, you guys can help me, <laughs> abandon restaurant, tire shop, tow truck company, and then you have this flashy race car, and he 
gets through a convoluted series of events stuck in this town and can't get out. And at first he's like, where am I? I'm in the middle of nowhere. This is terrible. And he grows to love the cars in this town. And he finally gets out and he goes and wins the big race. But what does it look like for him to show love to these new friends? Right? He doesn't just say to them, I love you and I'm going to leave you just the way you are. And he doesn't just go back himself. He actually goes back and invests in their institutions, right? He brings the headquarters of his racing company to the town. He brings his friends to buy tires from the tire shop. He gets the cozy cone back up and running. He helps support the vision of the other car to reestablish the resort. The restaurants are going right. He gets that part of caring and loving these people is caring about their institutions and their structures, that their layers of flourishing matter. And to love them is not just to leave them where they are, languishing, and say, I love you, but to actually invest in the infrastructure of the place. So that's a glimpse of what we're talking about. Another analogy, so in Holland, Michigan, there has not historically been a big cycling culture. And someone from West Michigan moved out to Colorado, discovered professional cycling, loved it, had a couple kids, wanted to be closer to home and still be a professional cyclist. So he moves back into this place and there's no cycling culture. So what are his options? He personally is a winsome person and he did some cycling evangelism, right? He got some people to love cycling because of his own love. At the same time, he bought a bike shop. First a small little bike shop downtown and then a bigger one in a more prominent location. They offer rides for all different levels so you can get into cycling and then you can move up. They offer family rides on Tuesday night with ice cream so you can get your kids involved. Then he connected with Tulip Time. I'm sure you've heard of Tulip Time, our annual tulip festival. And now as part of Tulip Time, the Sunday before Tulip Time happens, the streets of downtown Holland are closed. Professional cyclists are now coming through. So kids are growing up seeing, wow, there's professional cycling. And then he and his wife got together and they have offered free kids races earlier in the day. So now you can grow up racing, right? So you see how he impacted the whole culture of the town, right? He did the personal thing, but he also invested in the town, offered the volunteer opportunities, connected with the existing structures. He is casting a vision, right, for bicycle culture. So these are the layers of engagement that we're talking about. You, you meet a person and you see that they're not flourishing or you want them to have more and you engage that, but you also think creatively and structurally about how to kind of address the deeper layers, okay? So let's continue to flesh this out. Um, through the institute, uh, an institute at the University of Virginia, they have developed something called the Thriving Cities Project. And I think this is a helpful way for us to unpack some of the different layers that are needed for people to thrive and for you to begin to ponder where you might intersect with that. So what they've said, said by looking at cities sort of holistically, what does it really take for a people in a place to thrive? They've come up with this language, the true, the good, the beautiful, the prosperous, the just and well-ordered, and the sustainable. And each of those connect to institutional realities. So the true, how education, how is it we know, how does it we learn? So all the different structures that support education, public schools, private schools, preschools, nonprofits that have an educational component, the good, how do we know how to live? This would be nonprofits, religious organizations, um, maybe Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, things that sort of trying to inculcate certain ways of living. Then the beautiful, 
right? Have you ever been to a major city and wondered why they invest in beautiful green parks? Why ancient cities are full of architecture, you know, beautiful architecture. There is something about beauty that matters. So these are my two kids running in a public garden in Grand Rapids with sculpture and water, and there is something about beauty. And so there's a place for artists and architects, <laughs> for people who care about the details um, of design. And then the prosperous economic life. What are the economic opportunities, and where is there inequity, or where are there opportunities um, for people to invest economically? The just and well-ordered gets at political and civic life and I think this one is important. So this is laws and policies and lawmakers, but this is also where engineering intersects, right? Because what does it take for things to be well-ordered? What does it take for you to turn on your tap and have clean water? Internationally, that's something we've been attentive to, but now with the water crisis in Flint, if you followed that at all, we have this understanding that we can't take for granted that the infrastructures of our society work. I had a student last spring at the University of Virginia wrestling with this as an engineering student. What am I going to do? How do I care about justice? And I tried to cast this vision that caring for, attending to roads mattered. And he just didn't buy it. He just said, roads? <laughs> roads is justice? So I really wrestled with that one. And I've talked about it with a lot of people. But if you have been in a developing country, you know that roads can be a matter of life and death. If you can't get someone to where they need to go in a timely manner and there's an emergency, and so there's that layer of um, things being well-ordered, <laughs> things, and, and on a daily basis, you could say a road is a matter of maybe an hour a person gets with their family or not, depending on their work. There's also the matter of where roads are placed. So when highways are being built, there is data to suggest that often they're built through lower-income neighborhoods. So there's also a matter of, within that role, thinking about sort of equity and how those decisions are made. So there are a lot of layers to these ways that we, we want societies to run that take attention and take different skill sets from political to engineering levels. The sustainable, natural and physical health. So this would be medicine, access to health care, public health issues, as well as environmental health. Parks, green spaces, the overall environmental quality of things. Right? So all these different layers that it takes for a city to thrive and then for people in those cities to thrive, there is a place for each of us, I think, to see our roles as intersecting. So one of the pieces that I really want to emphasize is this is not just about paid work. I know that's been, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit of the emphasis. Um, but I really believe strongly that all of our callings are supposed to be part of this kingdom vision. So I know many of you have been involved with refugee work. Um, so I'm just entering in. Our church has been sponsoring a refugee family. They've got their two youngest kids are the same ages as my two youngest kids. So we've been getting to know them a little bit, had them over for some playdates, and then invited the seven-year-old to be on my seven-year-old soccer team. And one of the things I realized once, I, once we invited Kamal to the team was that he was the only child on the team not, whose parents are not together and whose parents are working class. And it was this window for me into a structural issue, right? So this is my role as a mom, but I'm thinking about, okay, what is preventing other kids on the team 
from being able to come. I think in my mind before that I thought maybe it's the cost of being involved in the league, but you realize there are a lot of different layers. If you're working a job that, whose hours don't neatly line up with a nine to five or nine to six, you can't get your child to soccer practice. And if you only have one parent and four kids, who, how are you gonna prioritize that soccer practice over the other needs of the family members? So all of a sudden, I have this little window as a mom through this one person into some of these larger hidden structural realities. And, and the weird thing about this cultural moment is that in demographics like mine, sports are seen as so essential, right? You're willing to reorder your whole family's life around your child's sports schedule, miss church, miss youth group, and then potentially we have this whole other demographic that because of structural issues cannot be involved. And what are we doing about that? So that's just one little example of what I'm talking about with this kingdom imagination. How is it that the things we're already doing, where we already are planted, we can go about but allow the Spirit to help us see where are things not right? How can I support this one person? And through that, how can I get into deeper layers that could be addressed. So the piece that I'm hoping um, you can take with you, this is this, I'm breaking every rule of slide making in the TED Talk world by putting all these words on one slide. Um, but they're just two beautiful thoughts that I wanted to put together. So Emmanuel Katangale and Chris Rice ran the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity for a long time, and they came together to write a book. And I love the way they put this. The story of the Ministry of Re Reconciliation always begins in the ministry of everyday life with someone responding to a gap. Responding to a gap is not about starting everywhere, but starting somewhere. The challenge is for each of us to be faithful, to discern and respond to the gap God puts before us. So from right where you are, from your own story, from your experiences, what are the gaps that you are seeing? If you've been to London, you can just take that phrase, mind the gap. It's a phrase as you're getting on and off the train, underground train. They say it's the space. Don't fall through the space. So you can reclaim that and say, mind the gap. What is the gap that God might have me mind. Mako Fujimura, who's a beautiful artist, puts it this way. What do you want to make today? He visited a high school with his daughter in New York, and that was their question. They wanted all their students. It was an arts-based high school. By the time they graduated, to be able to say, what do you want to make today? So he's saying, let's have, why don't we as Christians should be asking the Spirit, what is it you want me to make today? Where can I bring beauty goodness, truth. Where does my life intersect with that? So I'll close with this. Uh, a few different examples. I'm not going to go through all these. Don't be worried. <laughs> um, but these are all up here. These are sort of the pump the prime, pump the imagination, seeing where your life might intersect with some of these. So they can be very small things. Like I was saying, inviting someone onto a soccer team and through that having some windows. I was just talking to someone about her journey with her kids' education and seeing how many different schools they've tried and the dramatic impact the school has on her child's well-being. And I thought, I think God might use this. I think this right now is about your kids and their journey, but this may be about understanding the, the impact of education all around, and maybe a little bit down the road, you might have a role to play in education inequity, which is a real issue in our culture right now. Some other ones, just to get your imaginations going, and then we can open up for questions. 
uh, the com community kitchen. So at Western Seminary, um, one of our professors, so using more of his community hat, noticed that there were a lot of options for people to have a meal um, for breakfast and for dinner, but there was nothing in the middle of the day. And he thought, we have this whole building here. What are we using it for? So he connected the people together, and now every day at lunchtime at the seminary, in this one part of the seminary, there's a huge number of people that come together for lunch, and then some other groups have picked up Saturday and Sunday. So, so times when shelters are closed, there's now an option on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's, again, him walking around the community, seeing a need, not directly related to his calling as a professor, but with kingdom vision as a citizen, thinking this is something we should care about, and I can think imaginatively about what to do about this. Um, Ready for School is another one that's really a beautiful initiative, and you may have something similar. One of the big studies shows that if kids don't start kindergarten ready for kindergarten, it's almost impossible for them to catch up. So they will be behind, and they will stay behind, and then they'll graduate from high school behind, and that's an issue for them, for the community, for the economy. So a group of citizens got together, became aware of this, and, and it's, a, it's a joint initiative. So there's medical doctors involved, there's business people involved, there are churches involved, and, and sort of regular citizens involved coming together to say, what can we do to prepare nursery school kids? Well, first, how do we get kids to... How do we get parents to know that nursery school is an option? How do we provide scholarships? How can we run playgroups that can give skills to promote learning? How can we give away free books? That's related to when that's at the bottom. There, are, there is this whole world called book deserts. Have you heard of these? So places in urban centers largely where there are almost no books in homes, in stores, no books available. And then we have other places, like my own home, overflowing with books. You also have, in certain school districts, because of budget cuts, no libraries. Well, that's not true. There are libraries, but no librarians, so kids can't get to the books. So you have all these studies showing that early literacy is one of the most important markers of success in education. And then you have pockets in our culture where there is not access to books. Right, huge inequities within the same society. That's another place, as a mom, I feel like I could get really impassioned and involved. Let's take some examples from people within their work, and maybe I'll close with this one. Um, I, I love the story of this businessman in North Carolina who, he became a Christian in college and inherited a family business and wanted to figure out what it looked like to run this business as a Christian. And so he went all over and interviewed Christian business people. And to be honest, he was a little disappointed in what he found. He didn't see very many people doing that sort of integrating work of trying to figure out how that directly connected. So he used his imagination, and he runs car dealerships. And he has these really interesting layers of involvement. So on the one hand, he discovered that car dealers often charge the most to people from lower economic classes because they're not as aware that they have bargaining power. So a person like me walks in and I know that there's a pattern to how this works and I feel like I have some power. I can negotiate this price and I've done my research. And also if I need a loan, I'm going to sort of bargain my loan. But there's another demographic that doesn't have that same bargaining power. So often... There are some people who have less are paying more for their cars. 
So when he discovered that, he said, we're not going to do that. That's not going to be our practice. First of all, we're going to make sure there are dealerships equally throughout this city, and we're also going to make sure all our prices are the same, no matter what. And they charge less, but because they're trusted, they end up making equal or more than their competitors. He also figured out that not everyone could put away um, the same amount of money towards education for their children. So he started some, a kind of covenant where for every year that you work, he puts money into an education fund, um, regardless of your salary. It's an equal amount. And then as a group, he actually has a version of those um, six um, categories of things that matter. So as an organization, a whole organization, they do um, building projects, they support the arts, and it, so it's not just him making money and writing a check over here. It's weaving into their culture equity, we're all equal in this, and, and, and the equity that happens when you go to a Habitat site and you realize that the CEO cannot do the things that others can do, you know, so the humblingness of that and also the giving back. So there's this servant culture and, and sort of equity culture that permeates the whole that he's very intentional about. So he thought, he's thought of these creative ways within the institution of capitalism to think, what does it look like to do this as a Christian, to treat invest in the city out of our profits and to think about the equity. So that's one example of someone within their calling, um, thinking about how to do that creatively. All right, we can take some questions. Thank you. So the question is, how do you, when you see a structural or institutional injustice, how do you go about solving it? How do you show um, that you have a way that might work when there's a chance it will cause more problems? <laughs> and that is a bay. I mean, I think we're in a place with books like When Helping Hurts and other things where we're recognizing that our efforts to help are often very complicated. There's a, a fabulous international relations book um, that talks about all, you know, you think it's sort of an unmitigated good to provide food aid to someone, but what it can end up doing is perpetuating a civil war because one side is able to keep having the sustenance they need and then more and more people are dead and everything is just a little more complicated than we realize. So um, it is a very complicated picture and I think that's part of where the slowness comes in, to be honest, that you do have to take the time to be attentive and to learn about the issues and to, to read and to talk to people who've been involved and to um, come up with some thought out solutions. Uh, I mentioned in one setting a group of friends who have spent um, about 15 years living in this one neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. And um, I write about them in the book and I had to rewrite it two or three times to make it more and more sober <laughs> because they said all the things we've tried to do that we thought we're going to do all these things, really, it's just, it just complicated and these issues are very complex and hard to fix. So I think um, having realistic goals is one piece and having a thoughtful process is another and, and having some pretty wise conversation partners so that, again, you're not the lone range hero saying, I'm new to this place and I've got this idea and it's going to fix it, but I'm joining in with you and I'm listening. Um, do you all know um, Kara Powell? She's got, she's, she does sticky faith kind of youth ministry stuff, but she's got a great example, very simple um, of what it looks like to listen well in the process and 
Um, she talks about sort of an, a neighborhood with a lot of potholes and a youth group saying, I'm going to go help with those potholes. And so they go buy stuff and they pour it in and sort of the potholes are back in three days. You know, and then step number two is sort of doing a little more research about what would be good and maybe asking a couple people. Um, and so that works and maybe they last for a month. But step three, which is sort of the ideal, is going into the neighborhood, making relationships, talking to the people, and then figuring out why are there so many potholes on this street when in my neighborhood there aren't potholes? And figuring out sort of how funds are allocated. And then figuring out sort of with engineers what's going to fix the problem and also having a coalition of residents and youth groupers who go to the state level and figure out that the funds are not allocated evenly so these roads aren't as good as those roads. So you're talking about layers of engagement that involve relationship, listening, um, attend, research into long-term solutions, and then research to the layers behind that can address even longer-term change. So that's one maybe concrete way of thinking about some of the pieces involved. Mm, great question. That's one of those, I think, perennial <laughs> questions. Um, being a student is a unique season where you have things that are due consistently and they don't confine themselves to neat hours. And that's true of some jobs as well, but not every job. So you do want to give yourself grace within this season. I will say that I've talked to a bunch of people through the years who thought it would be impossible for them to keep the Sabbath as a college student and committed to it and found that it was actually much more possible than they thought. Uh, but if it's really not realistic for you, I think some pieces that you can do are to at least commit to a certain chunk of time when you know you're not going to work. So whether that's sundown Saturday, maybe you sort of begin with some fellowship that leads into Sunday morning worship that goes through lunch. Because I think what you don't realize as a student is that those deadlines are always hanging on you. And you're even if you're not actively working, maybe you have a sense you should be. So even to have that chunk where you know, even for five hours, I'm not, it frees up something. Um, another piece I would say to really consider is a technology Sabbath at least once a week, or you can call it a technology fast. But so even, I mean, you maybe that you need to, your computer to do your schoolwork, but um, maybe you could emphasize reading or use your word processing function, but not, um, not the other pieces. I don't think that we understand the impact that technology is having on us. And all the pieces we're talking about with slow growth and being attentive to God and kingdom vision are difficult when we're in this sort of connectivity. There's a fascinating study out of the University of Maryland. They asked college students to sustain from technology for 24 hours, and they tracked them. And the language that they used was akin to language that post-traumatic stress disorder victims use. <laughs> the sense of anxiety and fear and worry and disconnection and alienation. And that was already 10 years ago. <laughs> so things have only gotten sort of more severe. So I do think we need to be really intentional about our technology use. And so if a full-blown Sabbath isn't possible, then at least having some detachment from technology to try to slow down and allow the spirit to make us present to where we are would be really important. And things like communal meals, so like worship followed by a communal meal or a walk outside, um, you could also do, that wouldn't take a full day but are sort of different rhythm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, great question. If I could solve that one. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, and hopefully that can keep the conversation going. I do sense that underneath a lot of what we're engaging with in this cultural moment are questions of formation. What does it look like to be really shaped by God and Scripture? And I don't think that culture is inherently bad, but I think we have been naive about the degree to which we're shaped by culture and the pockets of cultures from which we come. So in my teaching, I try to do a lot with uncovering our theological assumptions that we don't know we have. You know, we assume growth happens this way, but maybe it happens a different way if we held that up against scripture and the tradition. And I do a lot with culture to say culture is a gift from God. It has certain purposes, but it actually is supposed to be hidden by intention. It's supposed to hold a people together and not be noticeable. And that, as Christians, makes it hard because we have to discern how we're being formed and then figure out where that's compatible with the gospel and where it limits us. And I think there are some limiting factors right now that we're not as aware of as we need to be. And we've inherited certain things from the American Christian tradition and from our political tradition. So I really think there's a lot of onus on church leaders to be more attentive to these dynamics and to, and to imagine deep formation. And I'm not sure we have an adequate vision yet of what that looks like in this cultural moment. But concretely, um, this is one dream I have, and, and maybe I can end with this. It doesn't solve all the problems, but I do sense we're in this. And I should say my, my mentor, academic mentor, wrote a book called Culture Wars, Diagnosing Cultural Conflict in the 90s when things seemed bad and they've only gotten more and more divided. And my early academic work is on pluralism and what it looks like to try to sort of inhabit our traditions and interact with others generously. Um, and I, I think we're in these pockets where we sort of have these received patterns and then we tend to be more and more around people who are like us and reading more and more media that is, reinforces our views. So I'm trying to use this sort of kingdom imaginative lens to think about what it could look like to, to move beyond this a little bit. So I mentioned this briefly at dinner. In the Great Depression, it was a divided time and especially an urban-rural divide. And the federal government funded this project to try to bring understanding through photography. And they sent out documentary filmmakers, though they weren't filming live, but they did um, film or they did pictures that showed the reality of how people were living. So it wasn't just the, the farm poor. It was an actual girl <laughs> in overalls and in a barren farmland, right? And it brought this level of understanding. So I'm kind of imagining harnessing digital media to figure out if we could do the contemporary equivalent of that. I don't think it would be through the government. I think it would be through maybe Facebook or Microsoft, but some way where we could get stories to each other that cross the divides. And I think you'd have to have um, a party that supports it, that people trust. You'd have to have the, the Fox News and the NPR person and this journalist and that journalist. And you, ideally, you would have Ta-Nehisi Coates and J.D. Vance. And you'd have, you know, you'd have these public figures that are on different sides, but that are saying, it's bad. And we don't want these divisions. We're not a country. We can, we can, we can make some steps forward. 
and figure out some way where you're simply letting stories be told. And maybe that's too naive. Maybe there's no simple way to tell a story without it being narrated in some way. But I do think we were talking at dinner with students about the power of story. And as you get to know people and understand why is the gun rights activist so passionate about that gun? And why is the refugee fleeing? And why is, and, and as those stories could be shared and heard, I just, I just believe it can make a difference. So that's one of the concrete things I'm dreaming about and wondering if we could do. And I think this is a time that calls for real creativity because the received practices are not working right now. So I, I'm hopeful for your generation too, that you're gonna have some creative ideas that can help us overcome some of these divisions that we've inherited, but it's not gonna be an easy task. All right, I think we're looking at the clock. Maybe it's about time. Thank you.